0: This episode of Exploration Radio has been made possible by the support of the Minerals Council of Australia. Find out why there's more to Australian mining and join the Friends of Australian Mining supporter network by visiting minerals.org.au. I am Teokolo In short, I say TK.
1: My job specifically is
0: to recover diamonds from the concentrate. This is my hope every day, to find big diamonds. I think about that in the bus every day. This is my mission. It's like my mission. This episode of the Exploration Radio podcast was also sponsored by the AIG, the Australian Institute of Geoscientists. To learn more about the AIG, the program that it supports, or to become a member, please go to AIG.org.au. That's AIG.org.au.
1: Ira, why did Lucara decide to acquire Clara? Clara is an affordable, potentially high-value growth opportunity for the company which is very consistent and compatible with our existing diamond mining operations in Africa. And Clara is a secure digital sales platform that combines proprietary analytics with cloud and blockchain technologies to completely modernize how diamonds are sold, removing huge inefficiencies and creating assurance from mind to finger. The way we sell diamonds really hasn't changed in over 100 years and in our view is ripe for disruption. And we think Clara will be the industry's first true blockchain to unlock considerable value in the diamond value pipeline uh, for producers and manufacturers alike.
0: Previously on Exploration Radio.
1: It was incredibly difficult, and I mean, the reason we ended up partnering with Rio Tinto was because we basically ran out of options. We could not finance Aber Resources, the land package that we'd acquired. We ended up selling a majority 60% interest in what has turned out to be a $15 billion asset. For ten million dollars, you know, larger diamond deposits are are really heading heading into their you know final years of production. And in fact, the Argyle mine that we talked about uh, a moment ago it closed its doors last year. And I have the latest uh, edition of those sled dogs you know, sitting right beside me right now as we're having this conversation. They're fourth and fifth generations removed from that same sled dog Thor, who uh, are constantly uh, you know harassing me to take them into the mountains so yeah, the timing was perfect for sure. I mean, I would say that, you know, the Australians were actually the first to kind of break rank with the central selling organization. They were the first to kind of really challenge that paradigm and, you know, went independent with the Argyle Diamond Mine. And, and that sort of, you know, that discovery was was in the, in the late 70s. And I think that certainly was something that helped, you know, the Canadians get there, and obviously with BHP partnering with Diamet on um, the first Canadian diamond mine, you know, made the decision very early on that they would not be selling their diamonds through De Beers or the Central Selling Organization, so that really paved the way for other producers coming behind them to also look at the opportunity of selling um, independently. Though they are a mined commodity, they don't actually behave like a mined commodity because they're a consumer-marketed product.
0: Ira Thomas started her career as an exploration geologist when she was part of the team that discovered what became the Diavik Diamond Mine, Canada's second major diamond discovery, and arguably one of the richest diamond mines in the world. In part one of our interview with Ara, we talked about how she got started in the industry, the events that led to the Diavik discovery, and how her career led her to now being the CEO of Lucara Diamond. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Ira. We find out what she sees as a future of the diamond industry, particularly in a world where sustainability and corporate social responsibility are playing an increasingly important part. My name is Ahmad Saleem. You're listening to Exploration Radio, and this is part two of our interview with Ira Thomas. This episode of Exploration Radio was sponsored by the SEG, the Society of Economic Geologists. Ira Thomas, welcome to Exploration Radio.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
0: And so the first question is, what is something that you think needs to die in mining? Something that we need to get rid of our industry?
1: You did send me these questions. And I mean, we talked about before kind of inclusion and diversity. And I think that there is certainly a perception that mining is still very male dominated. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is changing. It's definitely been a bit slow, but I think it, it really is about continuing to watch that. And, and push for that kind of transformation, and trying to get you know more and more women into senior roles. I think we've done a good job in certain parts of the business, but there still is that challenge of the of the glass ceiling, where you just don't see very many women executives now pushing into the exco's. Sorry, I've got dogs jumping around in here right now, so that was probably not very good.
0: Nah, that's fine. That 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 fits in well with our earlier discussion about your dog story. So that's perfect.
1: I honestly think the you know, the mining industry as a whole has gone through you know a pretty important transformation not just in recent years but I would say over the last you know twenty five years that I've been really active in the business I think you know at that time there really was this kind of view that the world had to to catch up and recognize the importance of mining I think that we quickly migrated to you know, we as an interest industry need to modernize, we need to recognize that there are some uncomfortable legacies that exist within the mining industry, and we have to own those. So I think that's a big part of it, you know, not passing the buck, but recognizing that the world has changed and we understand and know a lot more about impacts on the environment. And we understand, you know, and know how to develop mining projects, more responsibly with a longer view to, you know, full cycle reclamation. So I think, you know, that's been a big kind of evolution. And of course, in recent years, that's kind of migrated more into the social arena or the sustainability space in and around communities that are now very much key stakeholders um, and partners in, in the process yep. and into the, you know, the realm of governance and inclusion and diversity. So I think our industry, you know, know, has demonstrated that it's capable of changing, but we've still got a lot more work to do.
0: So there's a couple of points in there that I'll come back to. I'll go back to. But first, conversely, what is something that we need to keep in mining at all costs, something that's fundamental to our DNA that we shouldn't forget?
1: Well, I think every industry really has to be able to reflect on where they've been. I think it's really important to take the achievements of the past. You know, Canada, for example, has been a great mining nation. This is a country that's been built on its development of its natural resources. And there's a lot of expertise that's been developed in this country whether it be on the technical side around you know, mineral exploration or, or engineering, or even on the financial side and the development of the Toronto Stock Exchange and, and the capital markets that finance early stage exploration. So I think there's you know a lot of really positive things. What we have to do is kind of marry that wealth of experience with a more innovative forward-thinking agenda. And I think if we can do that, then we really have a very compelling combination where you modernized an industry that's got a strong, a strong future, especially as we think about the whole energy transformation. That's kind of the favorite buzzword around the industry.
0: That's right. But I mean, I think yeah, there are important points in the fact that we are a very energy intensive industry. And also the fact that, you know, the major cost of kind of the energy point of view is how do you get energy out to kind of the remote site where mines tend to be, you know, that, that that is a fundamental cost. Uh, so so you yeah, see, so what does the world look like when say we start using another source of energy, which is maybe say a little bit more expensive or you have to be a little bit more sustainable from the energy point of view. I think these are quite a big issues that, you know, we ha- we're gonna have to address at some point. Yeah.
1: I completely agree. I think it's, all, it's already happening. And again, it comes back to that decision-making and that balance, right? Between what you want to achieve uh, as a society in terms of your cost of energy or your your cost of resources that we use each and every day versus the potential energy or CO2 footprint associated with the production of, of those materials that we all all are, you know, need and use and don't intend to give up like our cell phones. In our right. and our cars and basically everything we have in our lives today that we don't grow in our garden.
0: I mean, that's right. Yeah, like we've effectively become a consumer society. So it does mean that, yeah, it's not like we're going to go back to a 1800 lifestyle where everyone's growing their own food and you only live with what you need. So, So yeah, so a lot of these things are going to have to be done in a sustainable world. And what does that world look like when the consumer wants to be more environmentally conscious and the industry has to kind of deliver a product that yeah, you know, they're going to want to buy
1: in that sense. Yeah. And I think transparency has a lot to do with it. I mean, I think we need to be educating everyone uh, about how and what we do and, and what the, the environmental cost associated with that is and, and what the benefits are. And I think that that education is really important because the consumer has an important role to play, right? We are producing the products that the world is consuming on a daily basis. And if we do that in a transparent way, so So it's very clear um, what the potential impacts of those developments are, then then they're in a position to, you know, be making those decisions and taking responsibility for those decisions, I think, too.
0: So, Ira, so you mentioned a little bit earlier, and I want to touch on this a, a little bit. You know, you mentioned the the concept that historically we were a very male-dominated industry. Um, and, you know, and you've obviously had, you know, quite a long career in this industry. And, and I think, you know, like somewhat uniquely about your career is the fact that you started quite early and, and, you know, you've had this kind of long residency time uh, in the industry. So do you care to comment a little bit how the industry has changed to allow, uh, you know, someone like yourself and particularly women to stay in the industry around the time when, uh, you know, like people want to have families, people want to be a little bit more sedentary for all intents and purposes and can't go, you know, traveling around or can't do kind of the, uh, the field time required for a lot of roles. So how have you kind of managed that challenge in, in your career?
1: Well, listen, you know, I think businesses have to adapt. It's not only mining, but it, you know, there are many industries and businesses that are feeling the same sorts of pressures. But for women in particular in the mining industry, you know, that, that has been a definite challenge in the past of trying to find that appropriate work life balance and particularly when it comes to travel into remote areas and you know initially this was a problem for our our, you know high potential female leaders but it also evolved to become a problem for our high potential young men as well because increasingly they find themselves in you know, relationships and having partners that, you know, had careers that had to be managed as well. So there was no longer one partner, you know, making the decision or agreeing to be the, you know, the the parent uh, or spouse that would stay home so the other could go and fulfill their duties you know in some high power career increasingly it's about balancing two high power careers and so i think that that um really necessitated you know a different outlook when i started in this business you know you got told you were going off for four months and you were just happy to have a job and you went off for four months and there was no deliberation Um, You know, today it's definitely well if i'm going to go for two or three weeks then i've got to balance that off against you know two Two, two weeks back in the city. So my spouse can manage that through you know through their own job priorities. And, and these are not easy things for sure. But I think given the, the the way that we have embraced technology in recent years and and certainly through this COVID period, we've we've come to really understand that you know we can get business done remotely and, and that it you know you don't always have to be there in person. And I think that part has helped. And I think this sort of view that you can take, you know, periodic timeouts um, from your busy day job and still come back in and 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 not having lost your sort of place in line, if you like. I think that was a big fear for a lot of career women that wanted to go off and have a child and, and worried about going on maternity leave and and basically forfeiting, you know, a lot of their future career potential. So I I think employers are more sensitized to this. I think they now understand that there is a real value in working with their high potential leaders to incorporate these important personal Aspirations and ambitions, because if you want to get the most out of um, that employee, then you, you know, you've got to, you've got to work to accommodate, you know, the other important kind of aspirations and in, in their life work balance equation. That's right. I mean, I think,
0: yeah. You know, I mean, there's a couple of points you made, which I think are quite interesting you know, like when I kind of look at this problem and I know this is something that the industry talks about a lot, you know, like one of the things I kind of think about is, you know, for a large part, we are a very technical industry. And if you take any technical job, and if someone spends a couple of years out of a technical field, you know, what you really need to look at is how much that technical field changes in that time. So if you took a six month break, you know, you might be ancient by the time you come back because of the way things have developed. And I guess, you know, like structurally, I kind of always saw this problem in that, yeah, you know, not just women, but if men wanted to take time out or, and you made this great point, you know, like I, I will put myself as that example, you know, like there came a point where being on the road 300 days of the year wasn't appealing to me anymore. And yeah, you know, so that kind of narrows the type of roles that you can probably go for uh, in that particular part of your career as well. Uh, so I always think that there's a bit of a structural problem in the fact that, you know, if you are a technical industry and if you don't create other technical avenues where, you know, someone can step away for a couple of years, you know, to, to take care of whatever personal stuff they want to take care of and then come back and don't feel like they are way behind the wave and then now feel that, you know, their career progression is going to be hampered by that timeout. And I don't think we've quite it's only recently i think that we've kind of started addressing the problem in that sense rather than uh you know well we just got to find people that are that are happy to travel 300 days uh, on the road.
1: That's right. I mean, you you have to find different ways to a- achieve the same outcome and it it doesn't mean that it, you know, it has to mean 300 days on the road like it perhaps used to. It doesn't mean that you don't have um a certain amount of travel that needs to be accommodated. You know, that obviously has to happen, but I think there is just a a much greater willingness by senior leaders and boards um, to try and accommodate, you know, their the needs of their high potential people. And uh, I think that's been a big evolution in the mining industry. You know, I think when I first started in this business, you know, things were just the way they were. You know, mining was a rough business. Mining business was, you know, in many situations an unsafe business where, you know, this just comes with the territory. This is just the way it's done. And we have to accept that there's a certain amount of risk in this kind of business. I think we've evolved to the point now where you know the the culture of the mining industry is 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 vastly different. Safety is a priority. No fatality is acceptable.
0: That's right. Yeah. And that's been a massive shift I think from from what, you know, the way things used to be done in kind of a uh... You know, the eighties and the nineties or, you know, that era where, you know, this type of risk was known, but. Yeah, like you wouldn't put any resources or anything behind to kind of change that. Yeah, you know, it was just like, ah, it is what it is and we'll just work with it.
1: Yeah, no, and I, I think there's been a just a huge shift in attitude. Um, you know, you know, it's kind of an industry that is you know, used to pride itself on being able to, you know, bootstrap anything and you know, the tenacious people that could go into remote places and difficult places and create value for shareholders and in this industry. You know the people themselves are very resourceful. To, you know, I think a more mature culture now, where you know, sure, all of, all of that is is still very characteristic of our industry. But now we know um, that there are, are better ways to to run these operations, safer ways to run these operations, more productive ways to to run these operations, and that it it doesn't have to be. A completely male-dominated um, agenda. You know, we have, uh, for example, at Lukara. You know, we are 85% female in our executive team. The managing director of our mine in Botswana is a woman. Uh, we have female truck drivers in the pit. These are all things that 20 years ago would be, you know, extraordinary. And they're still unusual today, but they are not nearly as rare an occurrence to see women, you know, working, um, you know, in the mine, running dozers and trucks and and actually active uh, at that level. So I, I think that's a, you know, a real plus and a real positive, but we've still got a long way to go.
0: You know, one of the things I find interesting is, you know, while I was doing the research for you, yeah, there was a lot of mentions on the fact that, you know, a lot of your accomplishments are Uh, regarded as, I think, accomplishments because you are a woman that has succeeded in this industry. Do you think that, you know, we're getting to a point where we can be a little bit more gender agnostic when we talk about people's achievements? And I guess I'm asking your personal perspective in the fact that, you know, like, how people view uh, you or you know, like the type of say criticism or plaudits you get when you kinda take different roles. I guess the view that people take on your career is changing in that sense?
1: I certainly hope so. You know, I have always believed in a meritocracy. I think that being a woman in mining has has had as many advantages as as disadvantages, for sure. I think that there is a lot of people um, that, you know, along the way for me that have been real cheerleaders and supporters and mentors and really encouraged me. And then there are others, as as you pointed out, that kind of look at it as, you know, the fact that I'm an anomaly uh, being a woman in this industry that's really garnered most of the attention. So, you know, I've always felt... Ever since I started my career, that whatever potential bias you encounter um, in your job or in your in your workplace can be overcome by just hunkering down and getting the job done. And I think that's something I've always prided myself in. Um, you know, whether someone had a view that you couldn't do it as a woman and 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 you and you demonstrate that you can or you're here because you're a woman and so my expectations are lower and I and I think in both those situations it just makes you want to work harder to you know to make sure that you kind of disprove those those myths or or dispel those biases and I think a lot of women feel that way I mean I guess
0: it's the second point that you made that I, I find quite interesting is that you know like a lot of the rhetoric sometimes behind your achievements is well the achievements are impressive because if I put them in a smaller pool of only women in the industry, then it looks really impressive. And I and I feel like you know, like we, we sometimes have this stigma of kind of putting people in a smaller pool to say, you know, like, yeah they're impressive, but they're impressive because you know they're only competing against whatever a smaller pool. And yeah, like, I guess I look at your career and you go, you yeah, know, you stack your career against anyone. And I think it's quite impressive, you know, the type of stuff you've done and the the variability of stuff that you've done. And uh, I guess it's, you know, like, it's something that I find that, you know, like, obviously there's a, a marketing piece that kind of goes behind this as well in, in, for certain companies, but yeah, it's also the fact that as an industry, you know, maybe we should move past the fact that we just kind of look at, like you said, uh, uh you know, based on people's merits and, and judge their performance based on that rather than always trying to pigeonhole people into a smaller population and saying, you know, whether they're impressive or not based on that.
1: Yeah, listen, I, I, I really um would never want to be compared to, you know, just my gender. That just seems ridiculous to me. Uh, at the end of the day, I am running a company that has a broad group of stakeholders, including shareholders, and my job is to make money for them. And that, at the end of the day, is um, a real uh, test of of my success. And I think it's as simple as that. Yes, I've I've had some really interesting opportunities throughout my career, and I've done a a lot of uh, incredible Things and had the opportunity to be involved in a lot of amazing projects, and and I don't think any of it is uh, diminished because of my gender. I think these are all um, experiences that really have no relation to my to my gender. I guess at the end of the day, um, as I said, the bottom line for me is that in any project I've taken on or, or any new challenge, it's really been about you know measuring you know success. Um, on the basis of, of, of whether I'm, I'm actually doing better for my stakeholders and, and shareholders.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, ultimately, that's the real test of whether you are successful in what you do or not. I mean, yeah, if you'd had a track record where you lost a lot of money for shareholders, you know, like I'm sure the opportunities that you would be provided beyond that point would be diminished to some degree. You are getting the opportunities you're getting because of your track record of having done things previously. Yeah, I, I only asked that question because there was one interview that I read where I think you know you made some pointed comments around the fact that you were sometimes questioned by investors when you've taken certain roles whether they. You know, whether the company needed to hire someone a little bit more capable to kind of run uh, the certain company or the certain role.
1: No, absolutely. I've definitely found that, you know, where I have encountered, well, you know, you're you're not a, a mining engineer. What do you think you you know about building an underground mine? Well, you know. The same question posed to a male mining executive who'd been in the career for 35 years and been involved in a number of successful developments would would never be asked that question. And I would point out that there are many men in this industry that have had spectacular failures uh, and lost their shareholders a lot of money and gone on to be, you know, seated. By a headhunter and an impressive job the next time round. I would say the likelihood of a woman doing that yeah is, I, is extremely low. I completely agree. And uh, you know that point, I would, I would, I would. I would say there's there's uh, many lives for uh, <laughs> some of my counterparts. I would say, and it's just it's also a testament to the pool. You know, the talent pool right now in this industry is so tiny. Right, I I always used to laugh with some of my you know my peers um, in the you know the same age that have been in this industry now for more than twenty five or thirty years. That you know we we almost win by default because there's just so few young people, you know, choosing a career in mining and, and, and that too is a, is a problem. You know, we have to be able to attract the top talent if we're going to continue to, to grow this industry in a sustainable way. And, and that's really where my comment about, you know, you, you can have spectacular failures and go on to, you know, fight another fight and live another, you know, day.
0: Oh uh, yeah, I mean there's, you know, companies and people that seem to bob up every uh every boom and they yeah, and you kind of look at their track record track record and go, you know, there's no reason why they you would ever give them the keys again to a company. But you know, I think it's a fantastic point you make is, you know, this kind of retention problem that we run into in kind of the mid-career. Part of uh, of a lot of people in our industry. If you don't fix that, you know the problem kind of manifests itself on the other side, on kind of the executive level, where you know, but like you said, by default, some people are just getting roles because there isn't anyone else around.
1: Yeah, and 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 listen, it's not that I don't believe that people don't deserve second chances. This is a tough business. Um, You know, you can have your sights on the prize, and you know, you hit the cycle at the wrong time, or you you know, didn't manage the share structure as, as well as it, it, it should have been. And, and, you know, suddenly you find yourself in a situation where, uh, y- you know, you don't have a uh, healthy value creation and, and, and so that does happen.
0: And sometimes these things are like, sometimes these things are just out of your control. Stakeholders can change their mind, you know, the market changes, investors kind of lose confidence in something, you know, sometimes they are just external factors that kind of railroad you in this process.
1: No. Oh, definitely. And I think that's why it's just so important to be be able to, I I think, learn from, uh, you know, all of those experiences and hopefully you take them with you and you and you. You know, there isn't a single person I don't believe in this business that hasn't gone through some sort of trial or tribulation um, in this business be, for all of those reasons. And, I, you know, I think the important thing is to is to is to kind of learn from that and, and try not to do that the next time. You know, I'm sitting with you know a share price on an asset right now on a commodity that's very much out of favor. And, you know, it's half the value. Uh, that it was, you know, two years ago, and yet the company has added significant resources to the bottom line and de-risked kind of the the longer-term growth strategy. And so, you know, that's disappointing. But it also, you know, fundamentally, for the for the people that understand, you know, the value that's the, that's there and being created, it, it represents a huge opportunity. And so, you know, you have to turn those things into positives and, and you know, recognize that, you know, by, I think, shepherding these assets along and through these cycles and doing the appropriate things as leaders and making sure that you're not basically sacrificing future value that, you know, these assets will eventually come through that cycle. And then you're incredibly well positioned to hit the next wave, and that's I think something that this industry is is done particularly well over many years of living through many mining cycles and knowing when to take your foot off the gas and 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 when to put your foot on the gas in order to get these projects through and into development in a way that's going to make money for shareholders and all the stakeholders is 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 the real key.
0: I think that's uh, yeah, that's exactly the point. So so let's talk about so you've given me a perfect segue into uh, Lucara. So let's talk about. Uh... Lucara a little bit. You know, one of the things I guess I find really fascinating about the diamond industry and Lucara is that, you know, whereas in other industries, you don't have to do that much kind of marketing or put that much resources in kind of the, uh, the consumer side, you know, like if you're a copper miner, you, know, you can sell it on the LME or there's other kind of avenues that you know, you can kind of go and sell them to. But you guys, as a diamond company or a diamond industry, you know, you kind of have to do, or it's probably wise for you to do that part as well as a company, because that kind of creates your, uh, you know, your appeal of your product and, and things like that. Um, and I guess what I find interesting is in that Lucara, you guys do a lot of the the involvement in the downstream part of of the industry as well. Can you talk a little bit about why you wanted to get into that space?
1: Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I think what's important to point out about diamonds is that, you know, diamonds is the only mined commodity that really doesn't behave like a mined commodity, um, it's a consumer product. It's a marketed product. That's right. And it is, you know, if you believe in and global GDP growth, then you know you're going to have a positive view about design about diamonds in the future of of diamonds. And I think for a long time the diamond supply chain kind of survived. I don't want to say realization because we obviously all. Always realized it's a consumer marketed product. But the way the supply chain, you know, traditionally has worked in diamonds for more than a hundred years is that you have the miners digging up the diamonds and ultimately selling them through to the midstream, which consists of diamond manufacturers, diamond polishers, diamond traders. who then ultimately transform the diamonds into polished product that then gets sold into retail and ultimately up into the brand. So you ended up with this kind of disjointed kind of supply chain where each participant is really making money on the backs of one of the other participants. And we as producers or miners said, you know what, we're really good at digging these things up, but, you know, we don't know anything about retail. You know, we're going to try and maximize our rough selling price you, the middleman, um, will try and figure out how you're going to maximize your margin when you polish it and sell it on. And I think it's fair
0: to say, in this point, that you know the incentives between all these different agents weren't always aligned in a lot of ways either. Oh. Yeah, the the midstream, yeah. the midstream people will try to hammer the producers as much as they can, so, because you know if you can get the producer down a few more dollars, it means your margin increases on the other side when you sell it on to the consumer side of other business as well
1: absolutely and it you know not only was there um you know a lack of alignment you could argue there was like really no no alignment right and so the problem with that is that you end up with these boom and bust cycles you know where the midstream oh you know in in times of uh, pressure when when you know the market is hot, end up overpaying for rough diamonds. And then if the cycle turns before they've finished polishing those diamonds and getting them out the door, then they're they're left with a whole bunch of high-priced inventory that they then have to heavily discount in order to to move. And so this sort of boom and bust kind of volatility has really prevailed in the market for the last several years. And, you know, we recognized um, a few years ago when I joined Lucara as CEO, that the supply chain in many ways was was broken and in real need of modernization. And, you know, that we as producers needed to recognize that stability was the key to, Maintaining good prices and then growing prices thereafter, you know, we deal with a, you know, a commodity, a commodity that fundamentally is rare. It really is rare, despite the kind of, you know, the view that De Beers, you know, has a giant vault of diamonds and if they open it up that, you know, they'll be worth, you know, pennies on the dollar. That's just simply not true. That might have been true, you know, 25 years ago. But De Beers made a very deliberate strategic decision once the Canadians started selling outside the central selling organization, as did the Australians and the Russians, that they were not going to try
0: to artificially kind of control the market in some way.
1: You know, we can look out in the future and see that we have depleting mines all over the world, aging mines. Argyll closed its doors last year. We have a number of the big Canadian mines nearing their end of life, you know, their natural end of life. And so we know coming along on the horizon that there is no new big new discoveries that really are gonna move the dial in terms of, of of supply. And so the fundamentals of this business actually look quite strong.
0: So so Ira, can I talk a little bit about why why were you tempted to become CEO? I mean like you know, what opportunity did you see that you couldn't do as a yeah, you know, as a founder, a large, like a large shareholder in the company, why did you want to jump into the CEO seat?
1: It's not necessarily that I did. <laughs> the way that it happened is that I had sold Kamenak to Goldcorp in 2016. Mm-hmm. I actually was looking around for something else to do at the time, and I had been presented an opportunity, not on the mining side, but on the technology side in Diamonds by a um, a Canadian, a prominent Canadian diamond manufacturing family um, that, again, you know, saw the world very much the way I did and that, you know, this was a, you know, a manufacturing family and and, and by the way, a lot of these diamond manufacturing families are third generation uh manufacturing right. families where they you know take care of these businesses
0: yeah it's like the mafia in some ways
1: Yeah, you know but when, what has happened in, in the case of this canadian family is they had their their youngest members of the family you know recently come through um graduating from university in you know one in computer science and the other in you know engineering, and you know they're they're learning the family business, and you know these young you know millennials are are looking at their grandfather and saying, "God, this is so antiquated. Why is it that we buy diamonds this way? It just doesn't make any sense like surely, with technology, there is a better way, and you know their grandfather basically said to them, okay, boys, if you can think of a better way to uh to do this, then you know, have at it and kind of lock them in, you know, an office for two years for them to to think about this problem. And of course the problem was is in, you know, without getting into a lot of boring detail, but because diamonds are such a heterogeneous commodity, as producers, you know, you know, we've always really struggled to produce Uh, diamonds um, consistently for repeatable value, right? Mm -hmm. You never really know what you're going to get out of the ground. There's 25,000 different categories of diamonds. So what did you get this month? What did you get last month? That's right. And so the way, you know, you can't look up the price of a diamond in the newspaper every day, like you can gold or copper. So with each of these individual mineralogical specimens commanding a different price, You know that's a challenge as a as a major producer when you're when you're trying to predict cash flow and have repeatable revenues. So the way we've solved that problem and is is basically to inventory diamonds over a certain period of time of production, and then once you got enough of them, you put them into broad buckets or categories based on size, you know, color, clarity um and quality and you and you basically put these mm. you know categorize these diamonds in a very crude way and then you invite your midstream customers to come and purchase those buckets and they don't get to choose Yep, they get given a bucket and say here you go this bucket is you know, $10,000, this bucket is $20,000 and it's uh, take it or leave it in the case of De Beers. If you're a Lucara and you're selling them on tender, we'd basically sell to the highest bidder. But in each and every case, you have to take the whole bucket back to your polishing factory at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And then invariably, what's amazing about this business is there's thousands of different manufacturers all over the world. They all manufacture different products, you know no two round diamonds are the same they all have different proportions and girdle widths and you know all different kind of um parameters mm. and they sell and distribute into completely different marketplaces so invariably oh, okay. they take the bucket home they look at the diamonds and they say okay well we can only use a third of these diamonds for our business and we're going to have to retrade the rest and so there is a huge secondary market for for rough diamonds as well where a lot of these diamonds are retraded and by our estimates a single rough diamond can change hands up to 10 times before it lands on a polishing wheel somewhere in the world wow and so you know these young diamond terrors are looking at this problem and thinking well this is just incredibly inefficient. This just doesn't make any sense. I mean, I Maybe. think you know,
0: like it's worth kind of saying the analogy. Like, you know, like it's quite an interesting point you make because at, what, what I found really interesting when I was looking into this as part of research for this is that you know, at no point is there a, a kind of set methodology for the value to be determined yeah, you know, so so at each step, like you know, like you said, it can kind of change hand 10 times. You know, those are 10 separate interactions where depending on the needs of the seller and the buyer, you know, the value has to be kind of uh negotiated at every yeah. step which seems like an incredibly slow process to sell something that you're trying to do.
1: Well, that's exactly right. It's, it's slow. It's inefficient. It destroys value. It, it really just doesn't make a lot of sense, but the prevailing wisdom in our business has always been, you know, if you want to sell all your diamonds on a regular basis for repeatable revenues, you've got to parcel them, you know, your nice ones up with your not so nice ones, and you've got to force your customers to buy them all and, and then they work it out yeah. later, and so you know we looked at this problem and just said, okay, this just this just doesn't make sense. And these two uh, young gentlemen tasked with finding a better way ultimately found a much better way, and and that became Clara Diamond Solutions, which was the venture that I kind of took on post Kamenak. and because I really felt mm-hmm. Clara had the potential to really disrupt the current sales practices within the industry. Um, and that, you know, really the essence of Clara is to, for the first time, to create alignment within the supply chain and have a digital web platform where, you know, the real secret sauce in Clara is a matching algorithm where we allow our customers to order polished diamonds. Mm-hmm. So forget rough. Now they're ordering, they're telling Clara exactly what it is that they want to polish in their business. So they're giving an order and polished. And then Clara is searching through all the available rough inventory, which has been scanned and in, in, there's a perfect 3d image made of each of those rough diamonds. And we now have a perfect 3d image of the polished diamond mm-hmm. and Clara basically finds the optimal match. It finds a rough diamond to meet the criteria for a polished outcome for each and every order that we receive. And in creating that match, you know, you're getting the right diamond to the right polisher in one step instead of 10. Yep. And everybody's buying only what they need. So it, it means you're borrowing less, you're a buyer means you're you've got more control over the price that you're paying cuz you're only you're specifying the price that you're you're willing to pay it's all done in kind of a black box and for the first time you know we've created this you know complete alignment within the value chain so
0: for people that are familiar with eBay you know it's effectively like when you put a filter on eBay to go oh, I'm looking for you know, a set of golf clubs for this price, Yeah, you know, this far away from where I live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you guys are kind of doing that part by trying to link the ultimate consumer to the, to the producer or the person that owns the rough diamonds.
1: Exactly the same thing. And it's such a simple idea, but it had never been attempted in the industry. And, you know, I, for, for my technology friends, when I was first investigating the potential of this and I was seeking their advice they all looked at me like completely perplexed and I you know I was like well would you know do you think you don't think it's a good idea they said I just can't believe that it hasn't already been done it's so obvious why is?" and I think that's
0: that's always a measure of a good idea isn't it when yeah you know, like someone kind of tells you and you go yeah of course that's like yeah that's exactly what we should have yeah that that's I think always the the litmus test of a great idea yeah
1: so you know we've we've launched it we've been commercializing it the idea it's a volume story really this it, it's the first Web-based digital marketplace for rough diamonds uh, in the world. The other big advantage that, that we have is that it's underlain or underpinned by blockchain technology. So you know we are tagging diamonds at their point of origin at the mine site and following them through uh, the process. And you know provenance has become a really important um, criteria. For consumers, they want to know where their diamonds are coming from, and that they're supporting responsible businesses that That's care about ESG. And so that that piece has also been important. Yeah, and it's it's going it's it's going really well. Now we're at the point where we have more demand than we could fulfill using diamonds from our own mines. So we we need to open the platform up, and we're in discussions with other producers about doing that. And in the meantime, you know, we entered into another strategic kind of arrangement. Uh, with the similar goal, uh, but you know, while Claire is for our, our diamonds under 10.8 carats in size, we entered into an agreement with the HB Group mm-hmm. out of Antwerp um, for our big diamonds, and they in turn have partnered with Louis Vuitton um, and are, you know, polishing exclusive patented cuts for Louis Vuitton. Um, so, but once again, you know, the, the, the thesis is the same, you know, what we're really trying to do here is to turn the supply chain on its head. We want to, um, actually fulfill existing demand coming from the brands, as opposed to forcing production through the pipeline and just seeing, you know, who's going to buy it at the end of the day. So it's really about working more closely with the brands to identify that demand, and, you know, the best thing about working with a company like Louis Vuitton is they never put anything on sale. So, <laughs> that's you, right. know, you, you know, you are protecting your prices. You know, those patented polished cut will be worth more in the future because they will never be sold for less than you paid.
0: So, I, uh, like, you know, when you say it like that, it makes total sense for a diamond company to kind of get involved in the full value chain. Of, of their produced product, right? Uh, you know the rough diamonds that you guys produce. It makes total sense for a company to kind of have that ownership, or some level of ownership, or some level of skin in the game along that whole process, so you can get some consistency of revenue. Do you think that you know maybe the reason why companies haven't done this is because of the history of something like De Beers being so heavily involved in that whole value chain?
1: I think partially I mean I think partially the system worked reasonably well in the past for a whole host of of reasons mm-hmm. I think you know today and in recent years it just has has not been working as well margins have been squeezed in the midstream mm-hmm. and you know even today I mean when, when we talk about it when we talk to our fellow producers you do have some producers that will say well you know we we see the merit in in creating stability but you know there's always some sucker that will come along ira and pay too much you Bye. know for for something and you know we we kind of like that and when you point out that 6 months later prices are are down 20% because that sucker has just had to you know Throw their inventory onto the onto the market at at bargain prices. um, It all ripples back, and and it's really about trying to demonstrate that stability is much more desirable over volatility. You know, we all have invested. That's
0: right. Like you can't deal with volatility on that level. Uh, Yeah, like some of the stuff. Yeah, you kind of like when you read, you kind of go, there's no way you could play this business long term if that's a level of volatility that's kind of hanging
1: around. Yeah, I agree. And so it's really about that mindset. And, you know, we're just so used to all playing in our own corners of the sandbox and not working together that it has been a big, you know, cultural kind of piece. Mm-hmm. To explain Clara and to get buy-in on Clara, but when we when we convince people to try it, the results are overwhelmingly positive. So we we you know my view is this absolutely is the way of the future. It's inevitable. It's just a matter of you know how long is it going to take us to to get that full adoption. And you know we've taken this technology around the world. Now we've patented it everywhere, and um, it costs us very little. To, to run the platform. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have time and patience to kind of see it through, but we are very hopeful in 2021 about bringing on uh much more significant third-party supply. And, and that in turn is really how Clara will become an important value center for Lucara. You know, it right now, it doesn't cost us much to run, but, you mm-hmm. know, you know, we're, we're making a little bit of money, but it's not really transformative to our, To our business but if we can even get 10 percent of global market share for diamonds and i and i think that's a very conservative outlook but even if we got to 10 percent the cash flow that we could generate through clara would be just as important uh, and would be comparable to the cash flow we're generating from the mine so that's that's kind of how we're thinking about it so one of the things
0: i find interesting is that as a diamond company you are thinking about additional kind of revenue sources that are not directly linked to your uh, I guess hard assets, so, so do you think that that's you know one way where the industry can kind of be a little bit more sustainable, where you know like players in them have to kind of take these bets to try to uh, to perhaps uh, make the companies a little bit more sustainable.
1: Yeah, like for us, uh, sustainability is definitely a, a factor. I think the natural diamond mining industry has to do a better job of of really espousing the benefits of our industry, whether it be in, in, in global jobs or, you know, how we manage our environmental footprints or, you know, what we're in, investing in in terms of local community development. But I think at the end of the day, you know, for us, when you look at the universe of of diamond uh, mines around the world, there's under 25 active diamond mines in the world. So growth is a challenge, like just going and finding another asset. Is, is not as easy as it is in the gold business or the copper business. So
0: I guess that's the point I wanted to kind of get to is that, you know, like as a company, if you're just focusing on hard assets, you know, isn't it a bit of a shrinking ocean uh, kind of scenario?
1: Yeah, and there hasn't been a big investment in diamond exploration in the last 10 to 15 years either. So, you know, we have our eyes on other assets and we continue to monitor. We've got a very modest kind of um, investment in, in new technology in respect of exploration as well. That we're quite excited about, but at the end of the day, what we loved about Clara was that it was a business in the diamond industry, um, uh, and though it wasn't a mining opportunity, it was a diamond opportunity, and so we felt that you know there there was good alignment and that it could represent a, a really viable kind of growth avenue for us. So I, I think we're trying to hit it hard on all fronts. Um, Clara's you know. It's kind of step one, uh, but we're also looking at other at at, at other hard assets, um, and you know, hoping that we can put another diamond mine into our portfolio at some point as well.
0: Yeah like if I look back at your career, you've done quite a lot of things. So, what is something that you haven't done that you would like to take on next? Yeah, like not that I'm trying to um, shoo you out of Lucara in your current position, but. Yeah, like what what is something that you haven't done that you really like to kind of sink your teeth into the next?
1: Yeah, you know it's a great question. I I think for me, um, and one of the reasons that I was keen to to get into Lucara, I didn't really finish answering that question. But you know, we had a CEO in two thousand seventeen who had been in the role for ten years and was really needed a change and and you know was was ready to move on and. You know, I, I was kind of beavering away on, on Clara um, when Lucas called me up and said, okay, well, guess what? We need a CEO. And so guess what? You're up. (laughs) <laughs> and that's when we decided to put the uh, the two companies together because, you know, that was the big deliberation. Do these things belong together? I was pursuing a technology diamond company. Lucara was kind of at this important crossroads. What do we do with this asset? Are we going to expand it? Are we going to look for another asset? You know, how do we grow this company? So we felt that Clara was a good first step. The second step was doing the work to understand the potential for expanding the mine underground and really pleased that we've been able to uh, put together an exciting project for underground expansion that will you know, happen over the next five years now that we've raised uh, an additional $220 million in the form of a debt facility. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, you know, stepping into this role, I had been involved in a in a, in a number of, you know, starting my career as a geologist. I've been and really fortunate to be involved in a lot of exciting exploration ventures, even a a couple that went on to, you know, be developed as mines. And I'd had lots of experiences, you know, through that part of the business. And, um, but with Lucara, it was really about stepping into that leadership role uh, on the mining side, which I hadn't done before and, Mm -hmm. you know, been involved in in lots of, of boards at that, Level, but was really keen to get more involved in an actual operation. So that's been a fantastic experience for me. I've learned a lot. And, you know, I think as you get older and your career evolves um and I think we maybe talked about this a little bit before you know I started out with a, with the goal of finding things like that was the you know my the biggest incentive was just the excitement of going out and, and being paid to go treasure hunting every day that was that was really what what got me up in the morning yep. And after some success and and getting into then, okay, well, now we found it. And how do we develop that? So going through the development phase, which was also a new learning. Um, but then, you know, the, the last piece for me was about, okay, we've got this great asset. How, uh, where do we take it from here? And, uh, you know, it really, a lot of it becomes around people and team. And that was something that I think I was, I was ready to take on. And it's been you know really rewarding to kind of build up a team of people and you know when I took on the operations you know we had a lot of challenges we were not performing well on an operational side Uh, we had to change out our mining contractor and we had to make a lot of changes within the organization and it's just incredibly rewarding today to kind of um We just went through our last quarter, you know, strong, stable uh, production, uh, the best in the eight year history of of the mine, and now we're, you know, getting ready to move forward with the expansion, so that this this chapter has been, um, you know, again, completely new and new challenges, uh, new opportunities, and I've enjoyed that a lot and you know, I, I don't, I, I, don't know if I have a next in terms of aspiration. It may be something completely different, um, but I, I am, you know, really uh, grateful. Uh, that I've had the chance to kind of experience, you know, every aspect of the mining business over the last 35 years. And um, yeah, I'll be uh, also excited to, to pass the baton to the, to the next generation. Maybe the next
0: thing is just kind of putting your feet up and enjoying uh, your spare time for a while.
1: Yeah. I don't think I'm ever going to retire. I will definitely (laughs) be be doing something. It's just, I, I, I love, the way you know our our world is going in many ways. I mean, there's so many big challenges out there. I don't, you know, certainly want to make light of that, but I think um, just the the pace of change uh, that's happening is 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 very exciting, and I think there's going to be you know lots of things to do here.
0: I think uh, I think that's probably a pretty good spot to end on. Thanks a lot for joining us, Ira. Again, I appreciate you giving up this much time. Not
1: at all. It was very enjoyable. Thank you so much. It's been fun to spend some time with Exploration Radio, and it's been great. Yeah, I look forward to speaking again.
0: All right, sounds good. And again, thanks a lot for giving up this much time. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Not at all. Thank you. Excellent. Bye. Bye-bye, Ira.
0: This episode of Exploration Radio was produced by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford, edited by Sean Jeffery, and recorded remotely in April and May of 2021. If you like this podcast, then consider becoming a sponsor to help us continue producing more of this content. You can email us on info at explorationradio.com or check out www.explorationradio.com to find out more about us. You can also reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Until
1: next time, let's keep exploring.